Amen. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Great. Glad you are here. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors. If you are new or visiting, I'm so glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us online as well. There's a study guide out the door if you want to grab it on the back table. Uh, if you want to do a little bit of a deeper dive in what we're talking about this morning. And really what we're talking about is just this series called All in Hope. And so what we want to do this year uh, for several weeks is just look at different stories of hope in the Bible. Last week we looked at the Israelites camping in the wilderness of Marah after crossing the Red Sea. And the main idea last week is that God is a healer. He, he, Israelites found a place to find for water. It was bitter. They couldn't drink it. They'd been in the desert for three days at this point, didn't have water, and God healed the water by having Moses throw a log in it and making it sweet and drinkable. I was thinking about that last week and this week, and I was like, you know, whenever you have a problem plumbing-wise, right, in your house, like it's never an easy fix. There's always drips and, and stuff, and, and whenever you fix it, like you can't just throw a log at it, but somehow God can, you know, and I was like, God, this, the idea you're a healer, but also like... You just make things work really well. And so I was just saying, like, can you imagine how thirsty God's people were after three days? And I was thinking about that as well. It's just like how thirsty I become, and I've become so numb to it at times. I'm, I'm a thirsty, I'm thirsty person too, right? And a lot of times you, you, you hear this, especially around the New Year, that we often confuse our hunger, our thirst mechanism for a hunger mechanism, right? And instead of drinking and becoming hydrated, we actually eat. And, and I was like, but just the idea that it's real easy for spiritual people to be spiritually thirsty, right? It's really easy for spiritual people to be spiritual, th spiritually thirsty. And the truths we looked at last week that hopefully gives us hope for God's miracles, we're not always designed to answer our miracles, right? We, God's miraculous, and sometimes He answers those things that we need answered. Sometimes He doesn't, but yet that doesn't change His miraculous nature that He has us on a path to be more like Him, all right? And then also, God, just like the log, can use anything at any time to change our circumstances. God could use anything at any time to change our circumstances, like the log, or like maybe something in this week. Maybe you had something happen this week. You're like, gosh, I, I, I didn't know, God, that you could change my circumstances, but you have through this thing, and it's not what I saw coming. Also, just as I prayed a second ago, where God has you right now, where he has me right now, where he has us collectively, is not our final destination, right? That problem you face, that thing you're worried about, or that thing you're celebrating, like even the good stuff, like that's not where we are. We like to think that when the good things, this is where we'll be, but you know, he usually moves us in and out of things. But for those that are struggling this morning, those that are, have issues in their life or have problems like, like I do, right? Like I have things in my life that I'm really holding on hard for God to do something in them. I know like that struggle and that space is not my final destination. And then finally, we can have great hope in God because his healing flows out of his character and nature, Right? Like, it's not just what he does, it's who he is. Oftentimes, we get identity from what we do, but God gets his identity for who he is, and out of that identity flows what he does. We usually flip it around. It's like, man, if I could just be a great basketball player, which 
I'm not, right? I, you know, I wanted to play basketball. My kid, uh, he's uh, eight, and he's wanting to play basketball, so he got basketball shoes for Christmas, and he walk, wears them around the house, you know, and we won't let him wear them outside because he'll destroy them because that's what eight-year-olds do, right? They destroy things pretty quickly. And, uh, and I was thinking back when I wanted to be a basketball player, and I'm right-handed, but I shot left-handed jump shots. Not because I'm unathletic, it just didn't feel very comfortable to shoot right-handed jump shots. So I had a, if you're a Bulls fan, I had a Horace Grant-looking light jump shot, which was not pretty. And it was rarely effective either, right? Usually they say it has to be pretty before it can become effective. Uh, I never quite got there, but it's fun. Like, but if, I can't play basketball, but I want to be a basketball player, right? There's the idea. That's how we switch it around. It's the, I am what I do, not I am what I am. But God says, actually, no, actually, who I am flows out of who I am, and what I do flows out of who I am. And so even though I didn't spend a lot of time with Israel crossing the Red Sea last week, that happened before Exodus. We'll be in Exodus 16 this morning. Happened before last week's chapter of Exodus 15. And so in Exodus 14, they crossed the Red Sea, Israel, if you know the story in their captive in Egypt, and they cross the Red Sea. Miraculously, the waters part, and they walk on dry ground. But this series of stories, last week, this week, and next week, reveals some of the things about who God is in relation to his people walking in the wilderness. So that's what I want you to think about. Like, as we are walking in the wilderness of our day-to-day life, sometimes we can see the forest for the trees, sometimes we can't, just like in the story. However, There is something about God in each unique story. And so just one, God, if we didn't cover it in depth, but God is a warrior on behalf of the people when he allowed them to get out of Egypt. God is a warrior on behalf of the people. So I don't know about you, but like maybe you're fighting battles right now that you're like, I don't know if I could fight these battles. And I want want you to hear me say that God is a warrior that fights on your behalf. Amen. Isn't that great? Like, and that's the thing, like everybody needs a buddy, everybody needs a partner, right? And then the thing is, is the things that we're fighting against, God's also fighting them with us. Last week, God as healer, as we looked at God healing the water, God is a healer. So maybe there's a thing that you're waiting for God to heal within you. It could be physical, maybe it could be something spiritual, it could be something emotional, I don't know. There's all the things, right? Like we go from thing to thing to thing, but if you're waiting, you're like, gosh, I, I wish I could just fix this. Surely I could just grab something and, and it would magically make this problem disappear, but God is actually wanting to heal with you, right? God is healer from last week, like he healed the bitter waterness and made it sweet. And then three, today, God is provider, in our text today, we're going to look at God as provider. So, and I just love just this idea of like God fights for us, He heals, and then He provides. And that seems to be like a nice little linear path when I think about it. But the truth number one, I'm going to share several truths this morning. Truth number one, no matter where you are, whether you need God as a warrior, God as a healer, God as a provider, God is the same God no matter His function in our lives. And that's what makes him so big. That's what makes him so great because he could simultaneously be fighting on someone's behalf, healing on someone's behalf, providing on someone's behalf. And in that kind of chaos, he brings a unity to his people. In that kind of multi-pitch, multi-faceted chessboard, he brings all of us together under who he is. Maybe you experienced that in your family too. Like 
D might be this way and then this week, and I might be another way, and then I've got my eight-year-old wanting to wear his basketball shoes outside, right? And, and that somehow God brings unity to all that. He does that for his people, too. And so whether God is your warrior, your healer, your provider, as we will look at today, God wants to be your God regardless. He wants to be your God regardless of the current role that he's playing in your life. And so the question is, okay, so if God wants to be our God no matter what role he is playing, then what does it mean for you and for me? And I think what it is is that you and I need to figure out how God is calling us to be a more submitted people. Right? No matter what the function is, what does it look like to submit to the process? Right? God's fighting that battle. Maybe he's not fighting that battle yet. He's healing. Maybe he's not healing yet. He's providing. You're waiting on that provision. What does it look like for you and for me to be submitted in that process? Waiting for him to move. Waiting for him to act. Waiting for him to change our circumstances. And, and a couple of weeks ago, remember, he doesn't just want to change our circumstances. He wants to use these circumstances not to fix us, but to form us into more like him. He wants to fix us to be more like him. And I love that, just this idea, like, God, like, that's really radically kind of shaping my prayers as we've been looking at that, is how can I not just pray for you to fix things, but how can I pray for you just to be something bigger in my life? I need something bigger, right? Like, I've got you in this box that if I just do these right things, if I pull all these knobs and levers, if I hit the right button code, like an ATM machine, then out you'll do what I want you to do, and then that usually doesn't work that way, but I think what he's saying is, no, actually, God, I want you to be bigger. I can be bigger. I can play a bigger role. And so the idea when we do that is this. It's, a, it's just taking spiritual next steps, right? And so today, this year as opposed to last year, I want to take a step to be a better follower for God. This is me personally. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me, right? I want to be a follower. I want to be a better follower. Not like... Let me do the right things to be followed, but I actually want to let that sink deeply into my heart and in my spirit. How can I take a next step to be a better follower for you, God, and allow you, God, to be bigger in my life? And so before we can take next steps, before I can take next steps, whatever your thing is, like we often enter into the new year with these goals, right? It's I'm going to go to the gym, or I'm going to eat healthier, or I'm going to not eat potato chips like I eat potato chips or all, you know, whatever. I'm not going to binge watch as much. We're going to have more family conversation. I don't know, right? There's all the things. And if you notice, they always go right out the window about, what, two weeks, three weeks in because life is so patterned and we have all these rhythms that we are just so used to. And so if we want to break that cycle, if you want to break that cycle, if I want to break that cycle, then I have to take a a next step and actually be honest with where I am, right? That's what leadership is at a base level, right? Leadership, two definitions for leadership, just whatever, right? One is helping people or yourself take a next step towards where you want to go. And then two, being honest about where you are. Because how can you take a step to where you want to go before you can be honest with where you are, right? Leaders always define reality. Like, and so some of it, what God's showing me is that he's like, well, actually, Tyler, I've been wanting you to do that all along. You're just not defining the reality that you find yourself in. You're not being aware of. You're not confessing that reality. I'm like, oh, that's it. That's great. Okay, so we're done, right? And he's like, no, no, no. You've got to do that over and over and over again. And so 
Our story is our pivot this morning is let's see how Israel is leading itself because God has led them out. He's led them across the Red Sea. He's led them in a place where there's water and he's made it sweet. And now we pick up the story in chapter 16. How is Israel leading itself in the desert? Which let me just go ahead and save you the, the, the suspense. They're not and they're not doing it well, right? Let me read the first three verses of chapter 16. And so they set out for me and that's where they were last week where they had... 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and this is after the bitter water was made sweet. So they set out from Elam, moving south, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Sin, not sin, although it's easy, it's an easy sermon topic, but it's pronounced Sin, so we won't go there. Because it's, it's easy to read sin, they're seen, think sin, and be like, well, hold on a second. Maybe they're in the wilderness of sin, and that's a metaphor, and that's not what the text really means. Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month, back in verse 1, after they departed from the land of Egypt. Okay, so they're moving away. They're moving on their path. And verse 2 says, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, this is their leaders, Moses and Aaron. They've walked them all the way out of the things. In Israel, all the congregation said, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the, to the full, for he had brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, so typical hierarchy of needs, right? If you're in the wilderness, you need shelter or security, you need water, and then you need food. And God miraculously provided them for water, and now they've run out of food, and here we are in chapter 16. And, and what I love is that I'm like, I see myself so well in this passage this morning. It's because after God, all that God had done for them, he'd been their warrior, their healer. He'd given the 12 springs and the 70 palm, 70 palm trees at chapter 15. The people of Israel began to grumble again. Right? And it just makes you think, like, when is it enough? When is enough enough? What does God have to do to say, okay, God, you're enough? Because here's his people, his chosen people. They're not just strangers. These are his chosen people. And he's done all these things. And as soon as they move on from the place of where he's you know, healed them and given them water, then they start right all over. You ever feel that way? I do. Like, hey, God, thanks for the water. It would have been better dying at your hand in Egypt because at least there were meat pots and microwaves, right? That's what I read, like in the modern context. At least there's fast food. You know, I didn't, I didn't love the living conditions, and I didn't have any control over my own destiny. I didn't have any freedom, but at least I had food, right? And somehow we equate food to be better than freedom because our body craves it. And I just love that. Like, they're complaining. It's like, like God doesn't know they don't need water or food, right? Like, he's God. He knows, you know? He knows they need food. God knows they need food. And he has given them food, and they interpret it to be something wrong with God as opposed to something wrong with them, right? Something that he's trying to do with them when they're like, well, God, you need to do something. You don't need to do something to me. You just need to give me food. Let's go. We had food in Egypt. And the fact that God doesn't want them to have it says something about his character, at least the, how they interpret it. And so just, this is just a side, but sometimes when God withholds, like, I hate to hear this, but I need to hear this. Sometimes when God withholds, 
I think there's something wrong with him when often he's trying to show me something through that withholding. And that's a really hard thing to learn, isn't it? As people, as Americans, with iPhones in our pockets or smartphones, when we can have anything at a moment's notice, we're so surrounded by food and water that somehow I miss God in the middle of all that desert. And I said desert on purpose, right? Like desert, uh, you know, in this context, the wilderness is, there's nothing there, it's barren, there's no drinkable water, there's no food, there's no sustenance. Well, there's the other side of that coin where there is so much food, there's so much provision that that's almost a desert too. Because we get so used to having it. We get so used to wanting anything when we want. And then when God doesn't give us, we start acting like petulant children, kind of like the Israelites here, right? Which I don't know anything about petulant children because I don't raise petulant children because I'm not a petulant child, just so you know. If you were wondering, right? Like if you're wondering, he must have learned that from his brother. Yeah, I did. Right, there you go. My brother, right? I learned everything not to do as a child from my brother. But don't ask him what he learned. So, okay, just for... There you go. In verse 3, it says, The people exclaimed, You brought us into the desert to kill us from hunger. You brought us in. Why did you bring us out of a death situation to bring us to a death situation? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Why would you bring us from death and bring us to a place of death? And the question is, is there's only one path that leads to life. Is it Egypt or is it the wilderness? In verse 4, Moses says this, I love this, and so like people are grumbling, like if I was God, I'd be super mad and frustrated because that's usually how I react to things. You can't ask my kids that, they'd probably say yes. And then verse 4, the Lord says this, the Lord said to Moses, behold, okay, so they don't have any food, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. I love that, like just... God doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't respond in frustration. He goes, okay, all right. They're crying out. I'm listening. Sometimes I cry out, and, and God still does what I ask him to do. Sometimes he does it, but it's a miracle that he does it all because I think I spend a lot of time crying out to him. As he's like, I've given you what you need. You can trust me. I'm good towards you. My heart is good towards you. And God says, tell them about to make it rain bread. You know what? If the miracle at the water, the bitter water is not enough, I'm going to make bread fall from the sky, which leads us to truth number two. Truth number two is God knows what your needs are, even if you do not have what you think you need. Can I read that again? God knows what your needs are. I'm hanging on to this too, right? God knows what our needs are, even if we do not have what we think we need. He knows what they are. And he doesn't just know in the situation that we're hyper-focused on. He knows it in all facets of our life. That emotional component, that spiritual component, the mental component, the physical component, the relational component. The financial component, like all the components, all the components. God knows what we need, even if we don't have what we think we need. And so the takeaway here, as we'll see in the story, is actually God knows better what our needs are than we, th- than we even do. Right? That's a hard one, right? But that's true, right? Like God knows my needs better than I do, right? Because God would say, like, you don't even know yourself. You think you know yourself, but you only really know yourself when you see you through my eyes, and you don't have my eyes, so you've got to trust what I see and where I see where you're going. 
We only, God only knows us the best. And so 4b, back to chapter 16, verse 4, the last, second half of verse 4. So I'm about to make it rain bread, and the people shall, here you go, here's the instruction, because there's instructions, so we're going to get this right, right? They're going to get this right. Just do this, and you're good. People shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test. Oh, he wants to test. Okay, so he wants to test them. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So it's not a truth, but just based on the text that sometimes he withholds the test to see if we'll trust him, even though we don't have a reason to trust him. Maybe we'll trust him in spite of all the things that he's done in their past and our past that we can trust him, right? Are you going to gather what you need, what you need, only, only what you need for that day? Which is funny, right? Because here's the thing, like, don't gather anymore because then I can't do that for you again tomorrow. And later on, it says, and on the sixth day, gather twice what you need to test them if they will follow God. And so the question is, are you going to only follow God? Or are they going to only follow God when he provides what you want, when you want, or will you follow him anyway? I mean, I think that's the whole point of being in the desert, isn't it? Like, it kind of makes it simple, doesn't it? And in this crazy life, like in how nuanced it is and how gray it is and how divisive it is, sometimes I think we miss the simplicity of who God is and how he interacts with us and, and, and not even think of it as a miracle because life's super complicated. But God has a way of driving right to the center of that and making things very, very simple, right? And we don't think of it as a miracle. But it's miraculous. In a world full of gray, God makes things very black and white. In a world full of nuance, God says, actually, no, it's simple. I actually want to test you because I want to know, do you love the gift or do you love the giver of the gift? Because that's how God's wired, right? God is a God who wants to be loved. But it's real easy to love the presents under the tree under Christmas, right? Are you going to follow me when I provide what you want or are you going to follow me anyway? Do with the test. You're similar to the statute that he, uh, that he enacted in chapter 15, like probably a day ago in this text, or two days ago in this text. In verse 26, he says the same thing. In verse 26, he says the same thing. I forgot to put my phone on disturb. Do not disturb. Excuse me for that. I've got like, when I don't do that, my iPad's connected to it. It's like all these things start popping. Like, I don't need to know that Reddit right now. Thank you. Anyway, okay. So, verse 26 says, if you will diligently, of chapter 15, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do which is right in his eyes, we talked about last week, not what's right in your eyes, what's right in his eyes. Don't substitute your truth for his truth. Actually, try to press into what my truth is. Because my truth is simple, your truth is not as simple. That's what I would say. And give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases that on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I'm the Lord, your healer. That's why we talked about God as healer last week. So two chapters in a row, he's already starting to say, do this. Follow me in spite of what I don't do. Follow me in spite of what I do do, right? And what I do. Which brings us to truth number three. When we doubt God's motives and abilities, like the Israelites are doing, right? He gave them water. He led them to a place of provision. He's pulled them out of Egypt. 
And then they're right back at square one, grumbling again. When we doubt God's motives and abilities, it robs us of the hope he gives us. Because doubt is the antithesis of hope. And doubt leads to despair, and hope leads to joy. Right? And so whether he's given you that thing, or he hasn't yet, or he did yesterday, and he's done in your past, don't forget the joy that comes in hope. And what the deceiver would rather you do is think about all the things he hasn't done for you when you want it, instead of thinking about and focusing all the things that he has done and that he will continue to do so because he wants to steal, kill, and destroy, as the scriptures would say. When we doubt God's motives and abilities, it robs us of the hope he gives us. All right, are we tracking? Yeah? Okay. Verse 9. Verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. And then Moses said, so, so they've, you know, they're still grumbling. And they've had this little back and forth. Here, let me just read you in between the two. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, just stop backing up a little bit. And even you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Because, you know, that's what goes for Moses and Aaron. But when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, so the quail, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord, right? So there you go. Like, they're complaining, but they're really complaining against the Lord. So like when we complain, even when we complain to someone who's wronged us, like we're usually complaining about something else, right? And their complaining is against the Lord, not against Moses and Aaron, because they're just following the Lord's steps. And then we get to verse 9. So, then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat the meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So now they're saying, like, and I love this, like it's the... I'm going to publicly declare what it is that we're doing. God is taking responsibility for the total provision for his people. Right? Like, that's what he's doing. He's saying, in spite of the grumbling, in spite of what I've done, in spite of what you can't see that's coming, because there's something else coming in chapter 17. They don't know it yet. We know it. Like, we get the, we get the blessing of being able to see the story ahead of time wherever we are in the scriptures because of, we're looking back on what's already happened. That God is taking responsibility for the total provision for his people. And he still does that today, too. In spite of our grumbling, in spite of the things we think we want, in spite of the things we don't get what we want, or sometimes he gives us things that we don't even want to deal with. And there's the other side of the coin, right? God's responsibility is total when it comes to providing for his people. But notice on the sixth day, Right? said this a second ago, six day, God says, actually gather twice what you need. First five days, just gather what you need for that day only, right? Gather what you need for that day only. But on the sixth day, I want you to gather twice. Now, why would he ask them to gather twice on the sixth? Because he's going to ask them not to do anything on the seventh, right? And if you know the creation story, God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. He did it all in six days. 
And at the end of each day, he said, it is good, right? God's creative purpose in the world, in your life, is good in spite of the disruption of sin. But on the seventh day, he rested. It was so good, he didn't do anything on the seventh. And if here's the first part of the story where God asked his people to rest, to rest. So he has them, hey, gather two times, see them out on six. So on the sixth day, I'm going to provide more than you need on the sixth day so that you'll have some for the seventh day too. Because he wants Israel to rest from its work of gathering his provision on the seventh, just like when God rested on the seventh day of his creation. Now, this is really counter countercultural, I think, to our mindset. We look at his rest as Americans, right, as people just working a job or whatever, we look at rest as something to avoid because we have too much going on in our life, right? Do you, do you do it like me? Like, I feel every minute I can. I'm constantly five minutes late to things because I cram as much as I can into these really small spaces. Do you all do that? Or is that just me? Anybody else do that? Anybody? Yeah? All right, one person's. One person, okay, we'll commiserate together, right? Or actually, the people that we were late for, we should commiserate, right? That's the thing. But God looks at rest as something good. Not something to avoid, something good. And for him to do it, shouldn't we follow in his footsteps? We want to participate with him because rest isn't some excuse to send us to our rooms, right? This isn't the... Like where I'm like, hey kids, stop bothering me. Like go to your room, leave me alone for a while. That's not what Sabbath is. That's not what rest is. God isn't sending us to our, his, to our rooms, metaphorically. He's asking us to participate in him in rest, with rest. Which brings us to truth number four. Sabbath, rest. They didn't see this because they didn't do it. Because later on, we'll see it in just a second, they went on the seventh day and there was nothing to be found. That Sabbath rest is God's provision too. And to a people like you and me that probably cram, what, maybe we're not five minutes late to everything, but we've got way too much on our plate and we leave little time to rest. And my encouragement to you and to me is that God does more in that rest period than he does in the six days. Because in that seventh day, here in the story, his provision is magnified because he's given enough to provide for that seventh day. But we walk away from it all the time, just like they do. We need to look at rest as rest, something holy from God, meant to grow us. Wonder why we can't take steps. Wonder why I don't have any time to be aware of who I am and where I am in my walk. It's because I don't have any space to just be quiet and still. I don't have any space to be quiet and still before the Lord. I got some time on Friday, and it was just a couple hours, right? It wasn't even a full day because I had other things going on. You know how it is. Like, there's life, and you've got to do things, and you've got three kids, and they consume all your schedule. But that two hours was like a cool drink of water for me, a cool drink of water. And he wants that for each of us as well. But we cram so much into our lives, we leave little room for it in our lives. Yet we ignore the Sabbath, just like the Israelites ignore God and complain against him. And we wonder why we don't know where we are, we don't know where he is, we don't know what he's up to, because we don't allow ourselves the space, because we don't get that like this. Figuring out where God is and what he's up to in our lives is not a microwave moment. 
It is a slow burn. It's a slow burn, and yet we leave little space for that slow burn in our lives. But the reality is this. Like, so like on the subject of hope, since that's what this whole series is on, I wonder why I don't have any hope. It's because I've never taken the time to see where God has been and what he might be up to in that space. But the reality of it is, is because of Friday, I'm more prepared to face my circumstances and to help build my part of the kingdom. But we never look at rest as provision we like. Because but God's identity flows out of who he is, not what he does. And we only get that by rest. Right? Only get that by rest. Verse 13. So, as I said, in the evening, the quail came up and covered the camp. That'd be great, right? For us, you know, quail eaters in the room. Eating quail all the time. Chicken. I bet quail tastes like chicken. Sorry, that was bad. Uh, anyway, and cover the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, in verse 14, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Like, just this imagery, like frost on the ground in the middle of a desert. Like, I wonder what that looks like, but I bet it looked really cool. Fine as frost on the ground, and when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, gather of it each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, a measurement, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. So everybody gets the same amount. I love that. Just in God's provision, there are no favorites. Everybody gets the same. It might feel like someone gets more or someone gets different, but it's the same. I love that. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, and when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Everybody had what they needed. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat, and Moses said in verse 19, let no one leave any of it over till the morning, but they did not listen. So there you go, right? Here you go. I wonder how they did. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. There you go. Right? So, of course, they didn't get it all right. Because we don't get it all right. And God knows that before he provides. Did you know that? God knows that you and I are not going to get it all right as before he provides. Which leads us to truth number five. When we, and I just like, and I think it's interesting. He said, just gather what you need. And some of them left it. And what happens to bread when it gets left out? It gets moldy and wormy and sneaky. By the way, I didn't put this in my notes, but I'll say it. Like, if you ever grab, like, I was in college, which was a minute ago. Me and my roommate had a box of crackers, right? Because, like, we knew if the cafeteria food stunk, which it often did, Right. The worst weekend ever in college, like I can think about all, my, all the fun times I had in college, was when my parents came on campus and they said, we want to eat in the cafeteria this weekend. And I'm like, no, you don't, because it's crappy food. And it gets worse on the weekend, because whatever crappy food they don't eat, they reuse it on the weekend. Like, don't, like, and they're like, no, 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 we want the full experience. And I'm like, you don't want gut rot. Trust me, you don't. So we kept crackers in our room, right? Well, what happens to crackers when they don't get eaten? They get stale and moldy, and sometimes they have meal bugs, right? And I remember I grabbed some crackers, and I was like, what is this in my hand? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. That's what the Israelites did. They didn't follow his directions. Because, believe it or not, there's an expiration date on cracker boxes, too, y'all. 
You know what I mean? Like there's an ex- there's expiration dates on both on most things. And when they hoarded it, right, they, they didn't use it all, so they kept some. And that's hoarding, right? When you don't use what you've been given, that's called hoarding, right? Any of us are hoarders in this room, right? You have a junk drawer in your house or in your apartment or somewhere, like that's your hoard drawer, right? You don't need anything in that drawer, but it's all there, right? That's what the Israelites did in the bread, with the bread. And so when we hoard God's gifts to us and don't use them, they rot and stink like the manna in the desert. They rot and stink like the manna in the desert. And so when we don't use all of what God has given us, things rot like moldy bread, right? They rot like moldy bread. And for Israel, it was manna and quail, right? You don't gather it on the sixth day. You're not going to have it on the seventh because I'm resting. You should be resting. You're hanging out in your tent. That's good for you. And if you hold some over thinking you could use it tomorrow and you don't do what I say by just eating what you need today, then it's going to rot because that's not what I asked you to do. And that's how things work in the kingdom. And so the question I have for you, if it's manna and quail for the Israelites, all right, just hold on, we're almost done. The question I ask you, does God, for Israel, it's manna and quail for us, it's our time, our talent, and our treasure, right? We all have the same amount of time in this room. Some of us have different talents. Some of us have different levels of treasure, but it's the same principle. And so the question I ask you is, does God need our gifts to accomplish his will? The things that he provides, our time, our talent, and our treasure. What do you think? Does he need them? The answer is no. He doesn't need them, right? He could do it without us, but he chooses to give it to us anyway. God doesn't need our gifts, but his plan is not to be dependent upon you or me or us. However, let's read just two more verses, verses 31 and 32 at the end of the chapter. So now the house of Israel, because of all this dynamic with the manna, now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like a coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Sounds pretty good, right? And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Here you go. Let an omer, the same amount that they were supposed to judge their daily intake, let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that you, so that they may see the bread of which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. This wasn't just provision. It was also a reminder that God's people are always dependent upon God for their provision. Now, it's easy for us because there's lots of different ways we could be provided for, right? And we could lose God in the middle of that. But I want you to catch this, okay? God doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need our gifts. Making a jump here from the quail and the manna to time, talent, and treasure. He doesn't need our gifts. But he didn't give them to us to watch them go mold and stale. Right? And go spoiled and unused. He doesn't give us things. He doesn't need us to do it to accomplish his will. But he gives them for us to use them. So while the Israelites grumbled and hoarded God's gift to them, you and I, when it comes to our time, treasure, and talent, should not either. God does not need them, but he did not give them for just ourselves, but for the blessing of others and the blessing of the church. Right? and blessing in the world outside the church. Your gifts, your provision is not just for you, just like my provision and my gifts are not just for me. And so when you think about hope, I find no greater hope than when I share whatever meager stuff that I think I have, when God's like, I've given you everything you need, because then I get to take the attention off myself and put it on other things where I get to press into 
press into. Isn't that glorious? I don't have to just live for me. There is no more. Like everything screams, live for me. And God says, actually, no, you get to live for everyone else too. And I'll provide for you along the way. That is freedom. And so it's interesting. The Israelites may be out of slavery in Egypt, but they're still living captive lives. Uh, You see it in the grumbling. And so you're like, okay, so what does time, talent, and treasure have to do with me right now? And just a couple things. The band's going to come back up. All right? Because we're not supposed to just live for us. We're supposed to live for each other. And with time, this one's really easy. If you and I have no time for anything, that's wrong. You and I should have a Sabbath. It may not be a whole day. I don't know, right? But you need to have space for yourself. And if you don't, I bet if you ask the people around you, if I ask people when I get in those seasons where I'm just head down, push, 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 I bet if you ask the people in my life and in my circle, ask, does he need a break? You know what they'd say? Yes, because he's chewing on us. And I wonder if it would be the same for you, right? If you don't have a Sabbath, if you don't have margin in your life, I would say you can't do anything else. You have to start there. Find an hour, find 30 minutes, find to have a conversation with a friend. It can look whatever it needs to look like. But most of us have no time for Sabbath or to ask God, what are you up to in my life and what do you have me provided for so that I can be up to in the world? See that? That's one. Now, treasure. Okay. This one's sticky, right? Because nobody likes pastors who talk about money. But there you go. Treasure. If I have no margin for anything in my life, that's wrong. Financially. And I get it. Like, we all have different degrees of what's enough and what's not enough. And I'm not saying that because I've got it all figured out. But what I am saying, I have to have margin in my finances too. Because they're not just for me. Right? They're not just for me. And so if I think time is hard, finances are even harder because a lot of times our finances are attached to the things that are in our heart, right? And what does the Bible say? It says, where our heart is, that is where our what? Our treasure is. And the easiest way to quantify that is money. So I'm not saying like you should do that here, but you should, but I'm just saying, right? Whatever that looks like, whatever that looks like. And I get it. You're like, gosh, it's January. We're already talking about money. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is what does margin look like in your treasure? Because you have it. But then number three. Okay, we're done. Okay, all right, that's the hard part. But actually, this one's even harder. Talent. If you think you have nothing to offer from an equipping and a gifting standpoint, you believe a lie from hell. Can I say that again? If you think you don't have anything to offer to anyone else or the kingdom, you're believing a lie from Satan from the pit of hell. Because each of us are provided gifts and talents to do other things with it and to build his kingdom. And I would ask one question. If you think that, which there are signs where I'm like, gosh, I just don't, I don't know if I'm good at this, right? I don't know if I've got this in my wheelhouse. I need to work on this thing because it's something that's lacking in my world, right? Like, like, I shoot left-handed jump shots, for goodness sake. I need to shoot right-handed ones for a while. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, because if my identity flies out of, uh, flows out of who, what I do and supposed to who God wants me to be, then I've just fallen into the trap of the lie. Right? 
Because here's the thing, on the back end of that lie, you say God does not value you, which is not true. Is it in our story this morning in Exodus? God cares so much about his people that in spite of their grumbling, he's going to give them what they need and give them more than what they need. But then the other thing is, is, is there some reason why you can't look at yourself the way that God looks at you? Is there some reason why you can't look at the way that God looks at you? You're better than God because you're not. And we have to see what he sees. And it comes from that time. It comes from that, that margin. Because you have more value than you think. And here's how I know. Because Jesus died for that person. Amen? And so when we, just to close, we talk about vision and direction and what's our word for the year for our church or for you personally or maybe for your family? If you're having those conversations right now, you'll never get beyond the conversation if you don't get these three things. Time, treasure, talent. And you're like, well, those are really hard. And I get it, they are. But that is like step 101. We'll never, ever, ever be able to be aware of who we are if we don't do those things. We'll never, ever, ever be able to lead ourselves or take those next steps if we don't do those things. And sometimes it starts with this. God, I confess that you are God and I am not and that you're going to give me what I need whether I realize it or not. And I trust you. And I trust you. And so don't do this. Don't exchange the hope of basic discipleship. That's basic discipleship. For the vision of a new year that you can never fulfill without the other three. See that? Don't ever exchange it because that's exactly what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to stay busy and never consider what are the basic things in our lives that we can stand on that lead to the better things. Amen? Amen. Will you stand and pray with me, please? And we're going to sing a song in just a second. I'm going to pray. And then afterwards, Travis will conclude... And if there's anything that you need prayer for, like anything, like there'll be people at the front that'll pray with you. Because here's the thing, you don't have to do this alone either. And there's no judgments. Like, there's no judgments. Nobody's perfect. And we don't have to be to be in a kingdom as we saw today in Exodus 16. So Lord, I stand before you and I just say thank you. I thank you that whether I see the value in me or not, that you do. Lord, whether I see where your hand is, your hand is there. Lord, whether I see that you're providing what I think you should provide, Lord, you've already provided what you need and what I need. And so, God, I pray that as we just think about what it would be to live a life where, God, you've done this awesome thing, and then we move into another place, and you've done this awesome thing, we move into this other place, and we doubt, and we grumble, and we complain. It's such a human experience. And we're no different than your people in the story this morning. We move from thing that mountaintop to mountaintop. And as soon as we get into the valley, I'm like, where are you? Why can't I stay on that peak? And you're like, because I've got to form you in this wilderness. So I, got, I pray that you do that. I pray that you give us hope. I pray that you give us purpose. I pray that you allow us to see those. And as we sing about who you are and what you've done God, I pray that we wouldn't get so focused on what we do, but God, who you want us to be. And we thank you, Lord. It's in your name. Amen.